I'm Indiana University School of Journalism Professor Mike Conway, and welcome to WFIU's Profiles. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers to the WFIU audience. Our guest today is Vivian Schiller, President and CEO of National Public Radio. A media executive and journalist with more than 20 years' experience in the industry, she comes to NPR from the New York Times Company, where she served as Senior Vice President and General Manager of NewYorkTimes.com. First of all, welcome to Profiles. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's so many things that we want to talk about while you're here, but uh, involving NPR and about the changing media landscape. How did you get involved in all this? What was your path? I think it was a fairly unconventional path. That My path into journalism? Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of useless when it comes to students coming to me, as they often do, saying, I want to get into journalism. How did you go into it so I can you know, have an idea for a path? My path was very circuitous. I was actually a um, Russian and Soviet studies major in college at Cornell and then got a master's degree in Russian from Middlebury. And uh, this was in the early 80s and then uh, worked for four years as a simultaneous interpreter and tour guide in the former Soviet Union. So that was my path into journalism. The rest of it all happened by accident. I was actually hired in 1988 by Ted Turner and his executives because they needed what in um, production parlance is called a fixer which is somebody to travel with them to the Soviet Union and do everything from make their restaurant reservations to make sure they get into their meetings that they need to get into and do the translation for them. Basically, I was a flunky. The great thing about that experience was I learned by the fact that they needed me to be in the meetings with them, I got to listen and learn from some of the best and brightest in the business. So that was the way I, my way into media. So it was kind of the right place at the right time, being in the Soviet Union when they needed someone who knew the language and knew the the landscape of the area. Frankly, I feel like my entire career has been about being in the right place at the right time. What was it that that drew you to this type of career, to get involved in the media or journalism? Well, like I said, I didn't really have a career plan when I was a student. But uh, as soon as I had my first taste of media, that was it. I just completely fell in love with it. And I started in uh, television, in long-form television, doing documentaries for TBS and TNT, and ultimately moved over to CNN, uh, where I ran their long-form programming division. We did documentaries on everything about the Taliban, a documentary we aired just a few weeks before 9-11, no one even knew about it, to uh, stories about Northern Ireland, to Iran, you name it. So um, those were in my television days. I just loved it. And then how how did you then get involved with the New York Times? Right. So from CNN, I was recruited to uh, start up uh, a brand new cable channel that was a joint venture between Discovery and the New York Times called Discovery Times Channel, which at the time was all news documentary. So we had access to all of the journalists at the New York Times. It was just like a dream come true, as well as uh, documentary filmmakers from from all over the world, really. And we did some wonderful programs. I did that for four years and then for business reasons, the joint venture severed, and I ended up, like to jokingly call it, in the custody dispute between Discovery and the New York Times. I went with the New York Times and became uh, the general manager of nytimes.com, which is the website of the New York Times. What was it about the opportunity in PR? Why did you feel the need to um, – you started there in January of this yes. year. Why did you feel the need to to make that kind of a jump? Well – I was really, really happy at the New York Times. I had no intention of leaving. I had no interest in leaving. I thought we were doing really exciting and really important work. But, you know, as we were saying before, being in the right place at the right time, this opportunity came along. And as I began to look into it and think about it, 
I realized what an extraordinary moment this really was for public media and that the idea of the public radio structure, which is a big national and, and international news gathering operation, coupled with our partners with stations all over the country, was a very unique model that I felt could be leveraged to do really great things for in terms of serving the information needs of communities. And if that were not enough, uh, I also was a CEO opportunity, so let's not kid ourselves there. And finally, I actually had been living with my family in Washington and commuting to New York for three years. So it was an opportunity to work and live in the same place. Now that you've been on the job a little bit, what is the role of National Public Radio for this country? What, what do you see as, as its place in the media? National Public Radio, our place today, NPR and NPR member stations, is to make sure that we hold fast to quality journalism and quality storytelling in the midst of really a revolution in the news media that, that that's underway today. There is all forms of other news media are really shifting and changing shape, and in some cases, unfortunately, uh, with some newspapers crumbling. And we feel that it is our role to make sure that people have a place to go where they know they will get fair, unbiased, fact-checked, verified information that they can trust. We you know, have have not cut back on our foreign coverage, on our national coverage. In fact, we're trying to grow um, our coverage for our main news programs, which is Morning Edition and All Things Considered. So that is our role today. But what's even more exciting to me is the continuing a new role that public radio can play in the life of communities. What do you mean in terms of the new role? Well, we are, as part of this crisis in media, Local communities are getting less and less information about what's happening in their backyards. It used to be the domain of newspapers to make sure that, you know, the state house, the city council, the school board, everything was covered. Well, with cuts, you know, with so many journalists having been laid off in the last couple of years, some public institutions are going uncovered, which is doubly troubling. It's troubling on the one hand because people don't have the information they need to be active in the democratic process. And it's also very troubling because bad things happen when public institutions go unwatched. So we feel like our role is to try to increase both the capacity and in some cases for communities that don't have it, the quality of local news at the public radio station. Here, of course, in Bloomington, there's fabulous coverage, but that's not the case everywhere. And also to make sure that uh, public radio stations become multifaceted, that they become public media stations, that they are as vital and relevant to their communities online, on the iPhone, on whatever platform the audience wants it, in addition to radio. So you're talking, do you see um, NPR making a concerted effort to be working closer with the local stations in terms of what those stations are covering locally? Is that going to be a big part of what you want to do here in the yes, future? Yes, it absolutely is. I would say those two things I talked about, local news and digital platforms are probably my two highest priorities. Of course, we are also in our own shop in terms of our own coverage, looking to expand our coverage, more investigative reporting on a national level, more foreign coverage, more in-depth coverage on big issues of national importance, such as health care and energy, the economy. I see a convening role for NPR as a membership organization to bring public attention, to bring funding from foundations, from philanthropists, from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, to local stations to help 
raise the level of local journalism and also to provide some thought leadership around digital platforms and how the kinds of tools that can be brought to bear to help engage the audience in the community so that they are participating more to make sure that they have the information and that they are able to participate in their communities. I'm sure you've seen a report that came out recently from Leonard Downey and Michael Shedson from Columbia, where they go down some of these roads to stick with the local here for a little right. bit, um, where they kind of say that it's up to NPR or the CPB, Corporation for Public Broadcasting, to almost demand that the local affiliates do a better job of covering local to get some of the money to keep the stations going. Do you do you go along with that kind of a model uh, that uh, you should play a role at NPR to really push these affiliates into doing more on the local level? Absolutely. And I spent a long time um, talking to Len Downey as he was preparing this report, so I don't know how much that factored into it. I've I've read pieces of the report. It just came out. So I haven't read the whole 100 pages yet. But yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd quibble with is I don't – the word demand strikes me as not quite what we're talking about. I mean, our role at NPR is not to demand anything. Our role at NPR is to support, to be an enabler, to help provide – the resources, the training, the funding to help bring the whole system up. So it's not a matter of, you know, you must. It's a matter of how can we help you? What can we do to lift all boats? Like I said, there's there's some unevenness across public radio and public media. And there are some stations like in this community where journalism, there's a strong journalistic culture. And, and there's areas where, you know, either because of lack of resources or lack of training, there's not. But every community deserves quality information about what's going on in their backyards. And, and in fairness, the, using the word demand probably might not have been fair on my part. I'm not sure if that word is actually in there. So I might have overstated a little bit. But on that end, so in terms of the NPR mission more on the national and international You've been involved uh, coming up on a year now. Why do you think the model has worked well for NPR in terms of the coverage of national and international with an increasing audience and people who, who I think in the latest um, study I saw, seems to see NPR pretty much down the middle in terms of trustworthiness? It's always gratifying to see the results that, that frankly, you had, in, you know, had intended in our case. We work very hard to not take any sides. Our job is not to represent a point of view. Our, our jobs are to report and provide people the information they need to make their own decisions. So it, I'm glad that people perceive us that way. Why do I think it works? A number of reasons. I mean, obviously, as, as you would expect me to say, I feel that the quality of our journalism is very high. But it's more than that. There's something about the power of the radio medium, which is unique. And this has been sort of a journey of discovery for me because I've been involved with television and print and online. And it's really my first experience with radio other than as a listener. And I think I failed to really, um, until I came to NPR, really appreciate how powerful radio is to establish a relationship with the listener that no other form of media can. People, I think because of the intimate relationship that people have listening often by themselves in their car when they're you know trying to wake up in the morning or, or making their kids sandwiches f- for school, that they feel like they have a very personal connection with the host. They feel like this is a media that is being provided especially for them. And I think the actual act of supporting their local station, the very business model, in fact, reinforces that loyalty. It's not a business transaction like, here's $2, give me my newspaper. It's an actual act of, I am part of you. And it reinforces the loyalty. And it's extraordinary. There are 32 million people that tune into public radio programming every week. 
That is a massive audience. They listen on average four and a half hours, and they are passionate. It's really quite extraordinary. Something that, um, since you've worked in the different platforms, that you, you may have given more thought to than people who've been in maybe one medium most of their career, is also the idea, and I don't know if you'd go along with this or not, the idea that radio, if you compare it to television, is fairly less expensive in terms of, if you think of the national, international, in terms of what is needed, in terms of not needing the camera crews. Quality reporting doesn't involve as many people. And I don't know if that, you've seen the numbers, but I wonder if that's part of it as well. It it absolutely is true. I mean, our, you know, I, I say we have 17 bureaus overseas, and we do, which is sadly more than ABC News, NBC News, or CBS News today. But our bureaus are one are one person. And yeah, you don't need a cameraman. It is absolutely cheaper. It's not cheap. I mean, the a- the average cost of maintaining an overseas bureau for us, just one, is half a million dollars a year. And obviously, when you're talking about uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, it's, it's significantly more than that. But absolutely. I mean, there's some advantages to radio, although in video production, the costs are coming down with uh, flip video. But, um, you know, in most places in the world, you really do need more than one person if you're doing television. So the the typical for-profit model, if we want to talk about international coverage, um, the for-profit model is, well, people aren't that interested, so it's not cost-effective to have the foreign bureau. So we've seen that in television, the, the, the shutting down of the bureaus and in newspapers as well. What is the NPR model to flip it the other way to say, instead, we're going to open up these bureaus? Right. Well, the idea that people aren't interested, therefore, we're going to shut down our foreign bureaus, I think, is something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I understand in, in television, since I worked in television, there is competition moment to moment for ratings, which has really quite a detrimental effect I think on on quality when you're when you're looking to compete, you know, in 15 second increments, it's it's very devastating to journalism, quite frankly. And we are uh, blessed by not having um, such quick turnaround ratings. In fact, it's it's a little bit too far the other way. We don't really we only get our national ratings twice a year, which is, is slightly appalling. But on the other hand, it allows us to, you know, do what we what we know to be the right thing to do in terms of of coverage. We certainly don't want to consider ourselves broccoli and force feed people coverage that they're going to find terribly boring. And our jobs, frankly, are to make important stories interesting to people. If we don't do that, we will have failed. But our response from our audience certainly both anecdotally and also quantitatively tells us that we are succeeding in that. People tell us that they hear both the stories they wanted to know and stories they had no idea they were interested in. But we're glad to know about because it opened, you know, another window on the world for them. In the nuts and bolts of how it works, um, how does one go about this idea of making complicated topics interesting to the listener? Because that is another argument that you hear in journalism. Well, all that, that is, but television, it, that's very complicated. It's just too hard to do. When in reality. I would argue any topic can be if it if it's done well is interesting to to the public and, and NPR seems to be in some areas planet money some of those areas where taking topics that making sense for us of big issues that have a lot of different facets to yeah. them. You know, it really comes down to some very simple values and of course, you know, talented people and the values are a good story with a beginning, middle and end strong characters, spectacular writing, and talking to people like they're thinking adults. Planet Money is a perfect example. These uh, these two young reporters, Adam Davidson and Alex Bloomberg, 
put together a concept, wanted to, in, in part of their search for understanding very complicated forces going on in the world economy, they started reporting on things like the derivatives markets and all kinds of things that people don't understand. And in trying to understand it for themselves, they were able to tell the stories. To, they were able to explain it to people in human terms, terms that we can understand, with a little bit of humor, with a little bit of investigation, and it was a wild success. And we've heard anecdotally from people really in the highest levels of finance and government that they listen to Planet Money reports to to really understand what's going on. This is complicated stuff, and making it understandable for people is one of the most important aspects of journalism. What was... Um Something that surprised you. I'm sure you've listened to NPR uh, during your life, and you're involved at high in national media, online with New York Times, et cetera. So you you know something about it. Then you take the job. What what are some things that have surprised you about what it's really all about as you're working there than what you thought? I think the biggest surprise to me has been the relationship that the audience has to NPR. I have been overwhelmed by it. You know, I've worked for some companies that have brands that people are quite attached to, CNN, Discovery, The New York Times. So I'm used to going out in the world telling people I work at one of these other places and they're going, oh, that's a really fine institution. And, you know, The New York Times, people love The New York Times. I love The New York Times. And they, you know, they they feel it's a very important institution, which, of course, it is. But the way people talk about The New York Times and the way they connect to it is very much on an intellectual level. When people talk about NPR, when I just go to my kid's school or or sitting next to somebody on the plane and I say I work for NPR, you can see a physical transformation come over them. It's mind-blowing to me. There is certainly the intellectual connection because people know that they they get the day's news. They learn things they didn't know. it, It engages their curiosity. But there is this response from the heart, this incredible, passionate, emotional connection to NPR, to public radio that says... This is part of my life. This is mine. This belongs to me. I mean, and and, and actually does belong to them. It's public media, but it's overwhelming. That's why I'm so optimistic about our success and our growth is not only do we have this very large audience, but we have an audience that is incredibly engaged. And they do engage with us on everything we do. Do you feel any danger as you feel... Uh, need to change what NPR is or to grow it or to go into different directions of alienating that, uh, uh, the core audience? Well, we, we certainly would risk alienating our core audience if we backed off one iota from constantly innovating our, our core radio programs. So we have to be very vigilant that we make them fresh. We, we constantly are examining them. We make them as good as they can be, keep trying um, new things, but, but sticking with what we know works. And, and we will do that. All of our efforts in other forms of digital media must never be at the expense of radio, and they're not. So no, I'm not worried about – because I know we are very steadfast when it comes to, to radio. So I'm not worried about alienating our existing audience in that sense. But I am very worried about not serving the rest of the audience that may not be listening to radio. Listen, 32 million people is a lot of people. But what about everybody else? We need to serve them. And we need to serve them by 
being on the platforms where they're consuming news. We need to be on Facebook, and we are. We need to be on the web, and we are. We need to be on iPhone. We need to be where young people are consuming information, wherever that may be. We need to make sure that we tell stories that attract a wide diversity of people. I'm not sure we've done that perfectly. We have to constantly be vigilant about reaching new audiences in terms of age, race, political orientation, what have you. To picking up on that, I mean, the audience for NPR is, is pretty well known to be more affluent, which is helpful at Fundrive time, um, but also not a very diverse audience. Um, are there specific things that you're working on in that area to try to get the more diverse in terms of audience and the people on the air? You know, the single biggest determinant of whether or not somebody's an NPR listener, if you had to pick one slice of the demographic, is education. More than wealth, it's education. Now, granted, sometimes usually those things go hand in hand, but not always. I don't know that we're ever going to be all things to all people. So I I think I feel pretty comfortable with sticking with aiming towards a fairly educated audience. It doesn't mean that we want to alienate people that don't have PhDs. I'm not suggesting that at all. But we operate at a certain level, and I think that's fine. However, if you look at the breakdown of college-educated Americans in terms of race in this country, and then you look at the audience for NPR, those two things don't match, and they should match. So we are trying to do a better job of this for a long time, but we're going to take an even more concerted effort in terms of the way that we sound, the kinds of stories that we're telling. Um, we do have quite a bit of diversity in terms of our um, our staff. In fact, the executive producers of Morning Edition, Weekend Edition, All Things Considered Saturday, All Things Considered Sunday, Tell Me More are all people of color. So it's not like we're a purely white organization. Having said that, that's not enough. And we have to keep trying better to reach uh, a broader spectrum of, of listeners. We're talking to the president and CEO of National Public Radio, Vivian Schiller, and so many more things we want to get to in the second part of this interview. But at this point, we always like to uh, let our guests choose a little music to be played during the program. And Vivian has chosen Jack Johnson. Where did that choice come from? You know, my kids turned me on to it. So <laughs> so I have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old, and they said, hey, Mom, listen to this. And I thought, wow, this is great. I'm actually getting my musical selections from my children. show now, so what's it gonna be? Cause people will tune in, how many train wrecks do we need to see? Before we lose touch, oh, and we thought this was low, well it's bad, getting worse, oh, where'd all the good people go? I've been changing channels, I don't see them on the TV show. Where'd all the good people go? We got heaps and heaps of what we saw. They got this and that with a rattle attack test. Welcome back to Profiles. This is Mike Conway from the Indiana University School of Journalism. Our guest this week, Vivian Schiller, president and CEO of National Public Radio. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. 
and the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. We've been talking about kind of the role of NPR in this country in terms of news, and now there's so many changes going on in news and in media in general um, in terms of online, video, all sorts of things happening. Where do you think NPR needs to be in terms of digital media, in terms of online journalism? Where does NPR fit into that? Well, our purpose, the reason that we exist is to serve the information needs of the audience. As far as I'm concerned, we will always continue to do that in radio because it's very vital, very vibrant in the heart of what we do. But we need to serve the information needs of the audience in any way that the audience wants us. It's not for us to say, if you want NPR quality news, you must tune into the radio. It's for us to say, ask the audience, how do you want us? And to give it to them however they want it. So that's why we are pushing forward on every platform. Again, on the web, on the iPhone, in podcasts. You know, if we can come up with a way to deliver the news, NPR quality news on the Kindle, we'll do it. I don't know what it is yet, but we'll figure it out. With so many news organizations stepping back, we need to step in and we need to step in on every platform. It's easy to say, but do you run into resistance when you try to uh, to enact or think about those kind of ways of, of, of getting into new platforms and aggressively pushing those? Not really. Um, you know, most of the stations understand that, that this is something that they need to do and, in fact, they want to do. We run into some resistance only in the form of uh, resources because, you know, it's difficult. You need to have extra people to create websites that work in order to do online journalism, in order to serve all these platforms. So, so that's a bit of a challenge. And of course, as has been well documented, um, the business model behind um, online platforms is, shall we say, emerging, <laughs> but not yet emerged. So it's a little bit tricky. But, you know, it, it's so clear to me and to my colleagues that this is something that we must do, that Frankly, we're, we're going to do it, and, we'll, and we, we need to develop the business models as we go along. But regardless, we're going to move forward. We have to. We're public service journalism. This is our mission. We're not here to provide shareholder value. We're here to provide audience value. Is there concern, though, for maybe the local affiliates that if everything is online, what is the reason to listen to the local NPR affiliate, and could that hurt those stations? Are those some, some areas that you're dealing with? We'll, we'll look at it this way. They, they may be con- some stations may be concerned about that, and they should be concerned about it because everything is fundamentally changing. So they have two choices. Your choices are you say, I'm not going to play because I don't want to cannibalize my radio broadcast. And then you watch other news organizations take away your audience on those digital platforms. Or you say, I am going to be my own disruptor. We are going to disrupt our own radio broadcast and make sure that we are on every platform. To me, the path seems pretty clear between those two choices. And how have you, uh, since you've been involved with NPR, how have you gone about this? What what kind of strategies did you bring with you to say, okay, this is how we're going to aggressively look at how to present the information that normally would have been coming over the air? I think the fundamental change perhaps that, that, that I brought coming to NPR, uh, certainly I was not the first person to, to evangelize on the power of digital platforms and being on many platforms. I'd like to think what I brought is a way for the stations to think about how this can benefit them 
and to not be concerned that NPR is trying to bypass the station and go directly to the audience. I mean, the fact is the strength of the public radio system is the local stations. And as a, as the central news organization, NPR, I want to only strengthen the relationships that the local stations have with their communities, not get in the way. So I have brought um, and the team have brought to stations strategies for how they can use NPR content to create a better, more seamless local to regional to national international experience online and on the radio, funding strategies, training strategies, really to focus on how we can lift up the stations and not bypass the stations. I would imagine part of the reason um, that uh, you were chosen for this position is that you have worked in in these different formats. I, I take it you have no fear as you move from one job to another, from one format to another. I don't because they all work in concert with each other. And in fact, the interesting thing about radio more so than print is I think it actually is the most durable of the so-called legacy media, legacy media meaning radio, television, print or old-fashioned, old media some people call it. I think it's the most durable because um, unlike print where you can really substitute an online experience fully, you can't substitute the a radio or audio experience in any other way but audio. So even if you're not listening to radio from a radio tower, you're still going to listen to those same programs on your iPhone or whatever device comes along next. And the portability and the ability to listen to radio while you're doing other things, there's nothing like it. There's no way to disrupt it. Ironically, look at the debate that's going on right now um, across the country about texting and driving. You know what? You could listen and drive and you're going to be just fine no matter what device you're listening to it on. So I think it's very, very durable uh, media. Now, you did a pretty um, big redesign of the NPR uh, website and the different pages. What what were you aiming? What kind of changes did you want to see with that redesign? What did How did you want it to interact with the user more than maybe it did before or other news websites have? Well, I, I mean, there were many things that we changed, but I think fundamentally, if I had to boil down the purpose of the redesign, is we wanted to change NPR.org experience from being one that of being a companion to radio to being a news platform in its own right. You know, under the old NPR.org, when we would do listener surveys and we'd ask people that were visiting NPR.org, why are you here? The number one and number two answers were consistently for quite a long time to hear the rest of a story that I didn't get a chance to finish on the radio or to see some kind of companion material to a radio story that I heard. So that's great. And we, of course, we always want to make sure that we can be a good companion to radio. But if people are only coming to us as a supplement to their radio experience, as opposed to coming to us as a news destination in its own right, we will have failed. So what we were trying to do with the new website, first of all, we made it cleaner, it's easier to navigate, but to create a place for people to go in between their morning drive with morning edition and their um, evening drive with all things considered, a place for people to go during the day when they want to make sure they get NPR quality news. They can check NPR.org, and if they can't listen, they can read. They can read the latest news off our blogs. They can read full text articles. They could look at slideshows. So we carry them through the day. We also made it much more integrated or able to be integrated with a local um, station experience for all the reasons that we discussed, why that's so important. I would imagine um, you're, you were talking earlier about that you, you don't know as often as maybe commercial stations how big your audience is in terms of uh, size. But with the web 
site, I'm sure you have pretty much instantaneous about how people are using the site. With the redesign, do you get a sense of, of how often they're using the the listening to the audio at the website or reading the text or, or looking at video or pictures? Yeah, our, our traffic is definitely up on the website, but I'll tell you what has really been striking, stunning, is that after we launched our we launched our, our website, about six weeks later, which was about six or seven weeks ago, we launched an iPhone app, the NPR iPhone app. And the traffic there has been mind-blowing. A full third of all our digital page views are now coming from the iPhone app. If you look across the total page views on our website and our iPhone app, it has been a smash hit. And the interesting thing is... Um, you know, iPhone metrics are still pretty um, nascent, but when somebody clicks on the um, NPR graphic once they've already downloaded, each time they do that, the average time that they spend is 15 minutes, which is extraordinary because it's an integrated listening and reading experience. So, yes, uh, this is a, a long-winded way of saying our traffic is up. It's certainly not anywhere the size as our radio audience. And we have reason, every reason to believe it is supplementing that audience, not substituting for that audience. Is this all part of uh, – I wanted you to talk a little bit about – I think you called it a digital think-in in San Francisco a few weeks ago, uh, bringing together people who are from a wide variety of areas involving in digital media in some way. What, what's the idea behind that? What are, you, what are you trying to get out of these kind of sessions? You know, one of the great things about public radio is we really engage with our audience and we want to hear what they have to say on all manner of things. And a big part of our audience is people who are really smart about digital technology in Silicon Valley, where we have an incredibly loyal listener base. So we invited some of the biggest brains um, in that area. And we said, look, we, we can't pay you a dime. We'll feed you some chicken sandwiches. Come spend a day with us and just brainstorm on the future of public radio. What can we dream up in terms of gathering the news, distributing the news, funding the news. Help us bring what you know about new media to the table, and let's just dream up new ideas for where this thing can go. And it was amazing. First of all, almost everyone we invited said yes. We had the CEO and founder of LinkedIn. We had the CEO of Mozilla. We had the CEO of Wikimedia. We had the chief scientist from Google. We had Craig Newmark of, of Craigslist. They all came. They put aside everything they were doing for the day to help us. And it was wonderful to see them so engaged and some really interesting ideas that we have to develop further came out of it, mostly around the notion of participation in the journalistic process with the audience. And by that, I don't necessarily mean, you know, amateur journalists out there with their microphone reporting stories. I mean, bringing the incredibly intelligent audience that we have into our process. I'll give you an example, if you don't mind. So the other day, there was a story that really captured national attention, which was, as we affectionately called it in the newsroom, Balloon Boy. And I'm sure you and everybody that's listening knows what the Balloon Boy story was. So of course, this is not sort of a natural NPR story, but we felt that it would be irresponsible for us not to, you know, report on what the country seemed to be so obsessed with. But here's what was this, and we certainly didn't overdo it. We weren't with it all day like the television stations. But here's what was astounding. The response from our audience, I don't know what the comments were like on other news sites for Balloon Boy. I can only imagine. But our comments were engineers who online, through the string of comments, were calculating the lift, 
the weight of the helium, the size of the balloon, the trade winds, using all these complicated algorithms and figured out before that balloon ever landed that there was no way that balloon would have been able to carry a six-year-old child. That's our audience. And that is, to me, just an amazing and fun example of, of how our audience can interact with us. Thinking about that, and, and is there any concern um, if if you worry too much about the, the technical side and, and, and kind of the the digital side, that they're to lose focus on the actual news gathering and presentation? No. Well, if we do that, we will have failed. We can never, ever lose sight of of the journalism, of the fundamentals of journalism, of the power of individual reporters uh, taking the time to work sources, to tell stories, to make sure they're right, to break stories. You know, that is the essence. From there, once you've got those fundamentals down, then you can talk about, okay, what does this sound like on radio? What does this look like on online? What does this feel like? In an inter- is, there, is there an interactive graphic that can help us display the data here so that it's more meaningful to the audience? But it all starts with the fundamentals of journalism, and there are no shortcuts to that, and there's no way to cheap it out, and those fundamentals can't be crowdsourced. Now, we've kind of talked around it, but to get to the kind of the main issue that faces journalism right now is how in the world we pay for this. Yeah. Um, so mostly in, in this country, we have a for-profit model for most of the media. Um, NPR different that involves government money and also uh, uh, people donating. The, what do you think the model is for journalism for this country moving forward? Do we have to think of a different way to pay for journalism? Yes, we absolutely have to think. First, I want to just uh, address one misconception there is about uh, public radio is that we are government funded. Our annual budget's about $160 million, give or take. Uh, we get less than 2% of that from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's government money, and that's in the form of competitive grants. Now, the individual stations get an allocation from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, but we are in no way a government organization or really substantially government-funded organization. We do rely – our revenue streams are um, across all of public radio, our listener support, underwriting. Those are the messages you hear from corporations. Foundation support from Knight and Ford and, 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 and MacArthur and those foundations you've heard of. Individual philanthropists and then sort of a hodgepodge of, of other revenue streams. Some local stations get um, state government support. Of course, that doesn't come to NPR other than the fact that the stations pay us for our programming. In terms of the model for either public radio or commercial radio, for that matter, it's the great conundrum of our time because clearly as media moves online, online advertising alone is not going to support it. I think what the industry needs to do as a whole is just go into a massive mode of test and learn, try everything. One of my sort of media gurus, who's a great, great uh, media thinker, Clay Shirky from NYU, is very smart on this issue, and, and he, he is very encouraging on everybody trying everything, um, in, and, and that a model will emerge. We just don't know what it is. And his, his line, which I quote often, is, at the end of the day, nothing will work, but everything might, which I think is actually, in its own very simple way, quite profound. And, and it's the way that I like to think about our own experimentations in public media in terms of what are the different ways. We will never, of course, charge people for our content in order to uh, to consume our content. 
We, of course, accept voluntary contributions. And we need to figure out a way to take that online and build that into the social media experience of, of everything we do so that people are encouraged, not compelled or chastised, but encouraged to, to make payments for journalism that they feel is important. And if they don't want to or they can't, that's fine. They can still have it. I am adamantly against and really strongly hope that even commercial enterprises like newspapers uh, don't try to charge the audience in order to be able to get in at all. There's different kinds of models that are possibility for, for newspapers, the membership model or um, the what's called the metered model, which is after you've looked at a certain number of pages per month, you pay. But if newspapers think they can lock up their content behind a paywall and that's going to be the answer, they're just going to find themselves out of business. Do you think there's any kind of um, – some people have tried to make the uh, comparison that uh, everyone said no one would pay for music online until iTunes came up with a model where people would pay for it. Could there be something like that for journalism, do you think? Or do you think it's too far down the road? Well, it's not even a matter of it being too far down the road because music was pretty far down the road too with Napster. I've heard the argument before, as you can imagine, but it's just fundamentally different. Certainly, Apple made the experience brilliantly convenient and easy. But if you don't pay for music unless you are going to flagrantly break the law, you can't get your music any other way. That's not the case with information. Information is everywhere. We are bombarded with information. Now, whether it's quality information or not is another story. But unlike music, which is not everywhere unless you pay for it, there are endless blogs, endless you know, quasi-journalistic enterprises, as well as many legitimate journalistic enterprises. And unless the entire internet goes behind a paywall, people will just seek the free alternative. And and even in quality, even if you just take the subset of quality journalistic enterprises, you know, news has become a commodity. And by that, I don't mean that quality journalism doesn't exist or shouldn't exist. But the fact is, it's not something so specialized that people in large numbers, some people will pay, then in large numbers, people will pay for. So if the best news organizations lock up behind everything behind a paywall, they'll have a small paying audience. They will over time lose relevance and people will find their content elsewhere, even if it's not as good. Did you find that? Uh, because you were at the NewYorkTimes.com when when they had Times Select that you yes. would have to pay for. You were probably there when it went away. I don't know if you were part of that decision. I was very much... Uh, part of that decision and and probably the lead supporter of, of of the decision. Time Select, for those that don't know, it was a partial paywall. All of the opinion content, the columnists like Maureen Dowd and Frank Rich and Tom Friedman were behind a paywall as, as well as the archive. And the fact is, if you run through the numbers, it just wasn't worth the audience that we were giving up. And it wasn't worth locking those co- very influential columnists behind a paywall because unless you were one of the 225,000 people that paid for the content or a subscriber, you couldn't get to it, which means it was out of the national discourse. And when we ended Time Select, yes, we, we lost that $10 million in revenue a year that Time Select was bringing in, but our audience practically doubled. And the relevance and the place that the New York Times then held in the national conversation you know, I'm sorry, that's not worth $10 million, not on a revenue basis across the New York Times of over a billion. These are all publicly available numbers, by the way. I'm not disclosing any trade <laughs> secrets. 
talking about social media, since social media is is uh, part of all of this, um, um, WFIU has a Facebook page, and some people wrote in some questions, so I thought I'd uh, uh, throw some of those for you. And and one of the questions um, from Facebook was the idea that as private radio stations have become less local, has that been of benefit to public radio? You know, I hate to use the word benefit because media and particularly journalism, this isn't like Coke versus Pepsi. You want there to be many journalistic enterprises. It's vital for democracy that there are. So I never want to, you know, gain advantage over a so-called competitor because their audience is going away. Of course, we will compete for stories, breaking stories, but I want all quality news organizations to thrive. Unfortunately, I suppose you could say we have gained competitive advantage, although framing it that way sticks in my throat, by virtue of the fact that in many communities, the local public radio station is the only locally owned and operated news organization. Think about that. Newspapers are owned by uh, parent companies, you know, thousands of miles away, radio, television, and it matters that stations are locally owned and operated. It completely changes the conversation when the people who make the ultimate decisions are embedded in the community. And we also have uh, listening in as as we're uh, doing this program, we have uh, graduate students from the School of Journalism and a video storytelling class. And so their questions tend to are going more in that direction. And one of their questions is, what makes a successful public media journalist different from a successful commercial media journalist? Ooh. Well, you know, I think in terms of the fundamental of journalism, there is no difference. I don't think, um, you know, quality is quality, whether it's in video or on radio or in print. So I don't know that I would make the distinction. I think the organizations from a management and leadership point of view are different in that I need to make money because if I don't make money at NPR, if we don't earn money, we can't pay for what we do. And if I can't bring in more money, I can't do all the more things I want to do. But at the end of the day, it's about raising money to serve the public as opposed to in a commercial company making more money to provide shareholder value. And so it's – I feel like I have the luxury of being able to think only about raising money for the public good as opposed to, you know, to bring the stock price up. That's nice, I have to say. Another question from a a graduate student from the School of Journalism – how has your background in documentary production, how do you think that's helped you in your role at NPR? That's a really wonderful question. I feel like my work in every um, medium has informed everything else, every other medium that I've now worked in. And, you know, documentaries are fundamentally about great storytelling and great characters. And that is absolutely the essence of wonderful radio programming. I mean, frankly, it's the essence of of a great novel or any kind of great writing. You know, my education in media was in documentary television. And I quickly learned that the story is everything. Of course, you need powerful visuals, and you don't necessarily need that in radio, where you need powerful sound. But really, the fundamentals are writing, story, character. It's all the same. And I think we'll we'll end up leaving it on that. I'd like to appreciate you for being with us on Profiles. Our guest has been Vivian Schiller, the CEO and president of National Public Radio. Um, This is Mike Conway for Profiles. And as we leave you, more music from Jack Johnson. (laughs) 
Well, I was sitting, waiting, wishing you believed in superstitions. Then maybe you'd see the signs. The Lord knows that this world is cruel, and I ain't the Lord, no, I'm just a fool. And in loving somebody, don't make them love you. Must I always be waiting, waiting on you? Must I always be playing, playing your fool? I sang your songs, I danced your dance, I gave your friends all a chance. Putting up with them wasn't worth never having you. Or、oh, maybe you've been through this before, but it's my first time, so please ignore the next. The program you have just heard was recorded in October of 2009. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington. Providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The funeral chapel to honor and commemorate. Three 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 forty four hundred or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling eight one two eight five five one three five seven. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.